I'm Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to the Mosen at Large podcast, episode two, in which we will talk about flashbulb moments, those historic moments that you never forget. We get some spontaneous accordion music in the mix as well, and we'll geek out on a little bit of technology. The show is based on the Mosin Explosion radio show heard live on the 31st of August. We're going to be talking about flashbulb memories. Flashback. No, 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 no. Not flashback. Flashbulb. Flashback. Go away. Can't control the production crew. There's a term for everything. And apparently flashbulb memories is the term that's used by psychological psychology types to define those memories that when they happen it's like a flash bulb goes off and they're ingrained in your memory and you never forget where you were although psychologists apparently have spent quite a bit of time studying these memories and even though you're sure that you know what happened and where you were when one of these memories occurred, it turns out that your memory might not be as reliable as you think it is. And you hear this, don't you? Sometimes you hear a couple talking and somebody says, I remember it like it was only yesterday. It was a beautiful day outside. And then the other member of the couple says, no, dear, it was pouring down with rain. You know, I remember it well. Anyway, there are a few flashbulb memories that come to mind for me, and one of the reasons why I thought it would be interesting to explore this topic today is that on the 31st of August, I actually have two flashbulb memories. My first big flashbulb memory occurred on the 31st of August 1974, so I was only five years old. I remember it was the school holidays, and it was a Saturday night. And I remember that I was listening with my brother, Colin, to some Spike Milligan. And then we got the announcement on the radio that our prime minister had died. And that was big. And I remember a lot of things about that time. I remember going to Rotorua the next morning in a a long car trip. And I remember some of the ads that were on and some of the news coverage. I remember the funeral. And I actually listened yesterday to a recording of that funeral from one of the New Zealand archives sites. And I remember the rain at the time and thinking, all you know, it was raining and, and all the people out there in the rain and everything with the coffin and, uh, and the rain was pouring down on the recording and I remembered it. It just all came back to me. Remarkable. And of course, a flashbulb memory that many will recall from this day was on this day in 1997, So 22 years ago today, when Diana, Princess of Wales, was killed in a car crash. I remember that one too. I remember I had a friend over, a friend, Stephen, and we turned on the TV. I don't know what we'd been doing, just listening to music or something. And we turned on the TV to watch a tech program. And instead, we got breaking news about the car crash. And then we turned on the BBC World Service and their news coverage said that Princess Diana had received minor lacerations and so we switched it off. You know, we thought, well, it's good that she'll recover. And then somehow we heard that uh, she had died. These days, of course, you get the breaking notifications, don't you? And the way that we get information about these sorts of news stories has completely changed. It started to change with email news services that you could subscribe to. 
And then the breaking news has changed that a lot as well. Is it just negative things that create these flash bulb memories for you? Do you only remember negative things? And what do you remember? What are those flashbulb memories for you? And where were you? And why do they stick in your head? I looked this up and there is a series of memories that people say are flashbulb memories for them. So here's some of them. And interestingly, there's only one in this list that I would describe as a positive flashbulb memory. And that's the first one, the moon landing. And people thought that anything was possible. It was, it was a great moment that suddenly humans had landed on this other world and people were excited about that. So the moon landing apparently created flashbulb memories for those old enough to remember it. The assassination of Martin Luther King. This is an interesting one because apparently it creates flashbulb memories for a huge majority of the African-American community, but not so much. I mean, it, it does for some white Americans, but not universally. And I guess it's not a, a global flashbulb memory, is it? I mean, you know, people on the other side of the world might have been concerned to hear it, but whether it was a flashbulb memory or not, I'm not sure. The sinking of the Titanic, I doubt that we have any listeners who can remember that one, but apparently that was definitely a flashbulb memory. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand was another one, apparently, that when the word got around, that was uh, that was a biggie. And, of course, it was the catalyst, finally, for the start of World War One. The end of World War One was considered another flashbulb memory. So was Pearl Harbor in 1941. I guess the start of World War Two before that for many others around the world. This, this list looks a bit American in uh, emphasis. The fall of the Berlin Wall, that's interesting because I remember being thrilled about the fall of the Berlin Wall, but I can't say I remember where I was when I heard the news about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Can you remember? I mean, was there a flashbulb memory for you in conjunction with the fall of the Berlin Wall? For me, as I say, it wasn't one of those flashbulb moments. Uh, JFK's assassination, of course, it's not on this list, which is extraordinary. Um, Everybody remembers where they were if they were alive when JFK was assassinated. Um, everybody does around the world, I think. it was That was a truly global flashbulb memory. So was the 9-11 terror attacks. No question about that on the World Trade Center. This list claims that I'm looking at here, it claims that the royal weddings were flashbulb memories. Not for me. I mean, the, the, the wedding of Charles and Diana... That was a flashbulb memory. I remember we all watched that. We all got to stay up late and watch it. But I can't remember anything at all. I don't even remember whether I watched the uh, wedding of William and Kate in 2011 or not. I did watch the other one with Bonnie, um, uh, Prince Harry and uh, Meghan Markle. I watched that with Bonnie. That was quite cool. I, I, I liked the... I liked the disruption of it, you know, with the African-American preacher getting in there. I don't think the royal family knew what hit it. But I don't remember the William and Kate wedding at all, so I I would argue about that. There are some other flashbulb memories that come to mind, and they might be generational. For me, of course, a huge flashbulb memory was when John Lennon was assassinated. That was uh, That was awful, absolutely awful. 
So, uh, and uh, the death of Michael Jackson would have been a flashbulb memory for many, I'm sure, in 2009. There are some other positive flashbulb memories for me. I do, I do remember when, and they're regional. I remember when uh, Jacinda Ardern here in New Zealand became prime minister. And, of course, a flashbulb memory in New Zealand will always be the mosque terror attack that occurred early in this year. It was, uh, it was a terrible moment for New Zealand. So what about your flashbulb memories? If you had to pick one, what's the flashbulb memory that stands out for you? Where were you? What do you remember about that moment? By all means, feel free to get in touch. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com on the email. You can call 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Sarah Hillis is tweeting in. I have the Challenger exploding as a flashbulb memory. I was lying in the school infirmary at the time when we heard it on the news. Yeah, it's a flashbulb memory for me too. I was listening to Radio Pacific. It was quite early in the morning, New Zealand time, and the news started to come through. Ben Constantini says, My flashbulb memory was when the Beatles came to the US for the first time. My mother was watching the TV and told me the Beatles were getting ready to get off the plane. So I, being only four, was waiting for these giant insect beetles to come walking off the plane. That's a lovely story, Ben. And that's true. We talk about how flashbulb memories are often negative. But the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show was a flashbulb memory that was extremely positive and game-changing for a lot of people. It's incredible how many people point to that Ed Sullivan show on the 9th of February 1964 as a moment that determined their destiny, where people said, I'm going to be a musician because I was so inspired by seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. So that's a very good example of a flashbulb memory being positive. At Large Podcast. I have had a chance to sip the coffee. It's very nice coffee. We have been going on a bit of a quest. Yes, another one. Because Bonnie and I, and yes, Bonnie's got into it now. Bonnie's been very kind and has been making for some time since I've been doing the ketogenic lifestyle. She's been making bulletproof coffee for me. Bulletproof coffee consists of good free range or whatever, fair, fair trade, that's what they call it, fair trade coffee. It has MCT oil in it, which is monochain triglyceride oil. It's tasteless, but it's full of healthy fats and it's incredibly good for your brain. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. If you have MCT oil in your coffee, just changes the sort of chemical thingy in your brain and you just feel so much more with it, mate. And then they put butter in it. The traditional Bulletproof coffee has grass-fed organic butter in it. You don't want any butter that's full of salt. That would be disgusting. And it kind of makes a very rich, creamy coffee. And it 
was a bear to make. Bonnie quite justifiably complained about the complexity of making it, how messy it was, how if you didn't get the blend just right, it was yucky. And then eventually the Bulletproof people, this is the the Dave Asprey-led Bulletproof organization, and you can listen to his podcast. He does a a Bulletproof podcast that has all sorts of life-hacky things. They eventually created these Bulletproof sachets that has just the right amount of MCT oil, grass-fed organic butter, and then you just tip it into uh, like a blender thingy, like a, a little blender, and or you can you can use a coffee plunger. What do they call that in the United States? A French press, and then you add your own coffee, and it makes a very nice brew in the mornings. But recently, the bulletproof coffee sachets have been out of stock. Oh. I know. I thought that it was a local thing in New Zealand, so I tried a Bulletproof coffee distributor in Australia, and they were out of stock. So then I went to Amazon, and Bulletproof coffee was out of stock there, and I went to the Bulletproof website, and it's out of stock. So I don't know whether they've discontinued the sachets, or they're changing the formula, or what the deal was. And so we wanted, you know, it's not that I'm addicted, it's just it really gets me off to a very good start in the morning. I find that if I'm dealing with complex problems at work, the Bulletproof coffee just helps me to focus. And also, the the coffee with the butter and the MCT oil, I think it's the butter that does it. The, the butter makes sure that you don't get the jitters. I'm pretty sensitive to caffeine because I don't drink a lot of it. And so I would find that with a regular cup of coffee, it would make me quite jittery. The Bulletproof coffee doesn't do that. And of course, it's great if you want to get your body into ketosis. You can have a cup or two of Bulletproof coffee in the morning and it completely deals with your appetite and you can wait until lunchtime to actually eat, which is great because intermittent fasting is also a very good thing to do when you're living the ketogenic lifestyle. So it's all good. So we found an alternative bulletproof type coffee, like a butter coffee on Amazon, but we were seriously getting ready to run out and we didn't want to run out. And we found this local, what they call a paleo coffee. It does have MCT oil in it, but it's actually quite sweet. And because it's paleo, the paleo peeps don't do dairy at all. No butter, no cheese. There's no dairy in in true paleo. So there was no butter in this particular blend of Bulletproof coffee. It's like an instant thing, so it's quite convenient to make. We got this. It's super sweet. I don't know what they put in it, but it it did the job. You know, got me into ketosis and made me feel good, but it is quite sweet. So we now have the butter coffee from Amazon, and it's okay it's very buttery. It's it's much more buttery than the Bulletproof coffee, but it's doing the job and it's really filling, actually. It's even more filling than the Bulletproof coffee. And so now we're, we're, we're up and running with that and uh, it's, it's good. So I highly recommend the jolly old Bulletproof coffee. Sarah Hillis is back and she says, I'm trying to imagine what free-range coffee would be like coffee beans frolicking in the fields or something. Very funny. Very funny. Yes, thank you, Sarah. Aren't you supposed to be writing a novel or something rather than bothering me? Oh, 
Hey, Jonathan. Oh, there he is. Mickey from Bismarck, North Dakota. Mickey! I am doing this recording on my brand new shiny iPhone XR. This is a great phone. I am slowly getting used to the new gestures. Congratulations on your iPhone XR. It's a good phone, isn't it? And I'm sure that it will stand you in good stead for a while to come yet. So congratulations. It's always nice when you get a new thing like that, isn't it? Especially when these smartphones play such a big part in our lives. So well done. I hope you enjoy the phone for for many years to come. And, you know, in a, in a little while, you may have even got there already. Those gestures will come as second nature. Uh, Bonnie has got an iPhone XS Max, which we got for her when she was going to the Seeing Eye to do her training. And because the iPhone XS Max has, like the XR actually, has um, eSIM capability, we were able to get her connected to T-Mobile before she even left with an eSIM, which was just brilliant. And she could keep her physical New Zealand SIM in the phone as well, which means that she was available on her New Zealand number and she had a US number so people didn't have to call New Zealand when they were in the US to talk to her. Uh, the dual SIM thing is absolutely brilliant. So I hope you enjoy the phone. And Mickey says in Bismarck, North Dakota, that his flashbulb memory is when Elvis died on the 16th of August, 1977. Mickey says he remembers that day well. He was listening to a sitcom on TV and a news flash came on stating that Elvis was pronounced dead. We were at school. It was the 17th in New Zealand, of course. And we stopped and put the radio on and everything basically adjourned because Elvis had died. My first wife, Amanda, her memory's a bit different about that. Apparently, people were going around saying, the king is dead, the king is dead. And Amanda was saying, we don't have a king. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Let's go to an email that has come in with an audio attachment. You can do the same if you want. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com is how you send us an email. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah, interesting topics today. I look forward, as always, to hearing about uh, your your impressions of what's coming up from Apple, as always. But this whole flashball moment thing is also very interesting. I have a couple. Um, the, the Challenger was... I do have a vague memory of my parents discussing the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion and, and what a you know disaster that was, and that, that a teacher was on board. Um, and I, it was in the evening. I, I don't remember knowing about it earlier than that. I might very well have, but I guess hearing it on the news and then my parents kind of discussing it kind of drove it home for me a little bit. Um, the other ones were uh, the Meech Lake Accord. Uh, this was kind of a positive one for me, uh, the defeat of that the Meech Lake Accord, which was attempting to start proceedings to separate Quebec, one of our provinces, from Canada. And uh, I, I remember really it created a bit of a real uncertainty in me like what would happen if if this started a chain reaction that sort of caused the country to really be not not just damaged by one province going its own way but but what if it started more of these tensions because even then i was aware that 
there were a lot of sort of tensions simmering under the surface. Uh, you know, Western alienation is, a, is another one where the Western provinces feel that the uh, government in Ottawa doesn't really understand or support them. And, and the Atlantic provinces get the, kind of the same thing. And then, of course, the First Nations people. There are a lot of seething tensions just sort of below that polite Canadian stereotype myth, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, that was it. I felt a, I felt the sense of how close that vote was, and just you know how much work we had to do to build the country that that we sort of thought we knew and thought we lived in. It it, it really kind of shook me. Uh, I just remember hearing Bouchard, uh, Rene Bouchard, the uh, leader of the op- the Quebec separatists, and how angry he sounded. Uh, the other one for me was Princess Diana's death, uh, but in a weird way, I uh, never really like the royal family. Never really figured hugely for me uh, in life, but uh, I did. I was aware that she was a good lady who had done. Uh, some good things, uh, not certainly to the extent that I knew later, but at that moment, uh, I was at a guest house. I couldn't sleep, and uh, I I was tr- uh, you know desperate for something interesting to listen to, and all I could find was Princess Diana's death uh, being talked about, and it just went on and on, and there was no escaping it. It was seemed to be everywhere on the radio dial, and I, it just it, I felt it was odd because it was. I felt bored, frankly, of because uh, this was repeated so often, and yet you know you feel guilty if you you, know, you shouldn't feel bored if someone's dead, right? So I felt sort of that that boredom, the inescapable boredom, but also this this utter guilt at myself for feeling bored with this this thing, and it was just, it, and I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia, and I knew it. There was no way I was going to get a wink of sleep. So I just stuck there, um, and yeah, that was uh, that that sticks in my brain. <laughs> so yeah, I certainly have uh, a few of these these moments. Oh, thank you, Mike. That's Michael Fair in Canada. Interesting. You make a couple of comments that prompt me to comment. Your comment about Canada is certainly very reminiscent of what happened to us in New Zealand earlier this year because New Zealand has this reputation for being a very peaceful nation and it would have shaken us up no matter what, the mosque attack that happened in Christchurch. And, of course, it was somebody who came from Australia and um, perpetrated that attack. But it really made New Zealand confront that we're, we're not the image that a lot of people believers to be and that there is still a lot of racism in New Zealand and prejudice and it it was it was a pretty difficult moment for us in New Zealand and it is tough when there's a big news story and you just don't relate to the person who has died you know you don't wish anybody any ill of course but it just doesn't resonate with you the way it's resonating with a lot of the world it can be a bit alienating and difficult can't it I think in the case of Diana and I'm not a royalist, but when you're of a certain age, we remember the fairy tale, this young, very beautiful, shy woman without a past who suddenly became a princess and she looked every inch the princess and it was a fairy tale wedding. And then over time, we just saw it unraveling, you know, in 1992, of course, the 
year that the Queen called her Annus Horribilis, uh, where they officially separated, and uh, and then and then the crash. And it just, uh, you know, there were the, the, the media interviews where they dissed each other. It all got really unpleasant. And, and I think that's what made it so tragic, that the fairy tale just turned into a nightmare over time with the saddest possible end. At Large Podcast. Peggy Kern says, Did I hear you say that the 10R has eSIM? I thought it was the only one that didn't. How do I know if it does? You know that it does because I'm telling you it does, Peggy. <laughs> yeah, if you want to use it, just uh, get a carrier that supports eSIM and get them to program your phone. There are a number of ways to do it. For example, with T-Mobile, they have an app. And with T-Mobile Prepay, you can actually do it all through the app. We did it from New Zealand. We signed up an account for Bonnie with the T-Mobile eSIM. And it was all done internationally so that when she stepped off the plane, she had a U.S. number. T-Mobile in the last couple of weeks have said that they are allowing uh, full accounts now, not just the prepay, but your, your monthly accounts to do eSIM as well. But I don't think you can do that bit through the app. I think you have to go in and scan a barcode or something like that to get it working. AT&T also do eSIM. I think all the US carriers do eSIM. So if you want, you can dispense with your regular SIM card. Um, Although I'm not sure what the advantage of that would be. I think the big advantage is when you want to be on two carriers. And that's where it really shines. Or multiple carriers. You can have as many eSIMs as you want. It's just that you can only have one eSIM active. So if you want, for example, if you're on AT&T and you would like to have Sprint or T-Mobile, just in case you find yourself in an area where the AT&T coverage is dodgy, then you can get an eSIM and have them both running at once. So yes, the 10R most definitely does have eSIM, Peggy. Terry Clasper says, I use eSIM on my 10S for my work-related stuff. I have a physical SIM for standard use and use an eSIM for business purposes. When my provider, O2, set it up, it was activated via a text message. Well, it doesn't get much simpler than that, does it? Now, says Terry, I can designate contact, contacts to either my physical or eSIM and easily toggle between the two if necessary. That's right. You can set your default provider for each contact, which is really, really cool. It's it's very well implemented, and there are even better features coming in iOS 13. I'm going to show you where you find this stuff. So the first thing we do is we say to Siri, open settings. Settings. There we go. There's settings with my Daniel Compact voice, and people are going to be hating on me for this, but I like my Daniel Compact voice. I like the fact that I can have it at a reasonable speed and it's uh, it's pretty accurate in terms of its pronunciation. So I go to the top of the screen. Settings. Search. Jonathan Mo- Aeroplane. Wi-Fi. Bluetooth. Mobile. Button. Now that's the one. It will say something different depending on where in the world you are. Here it says mobile. I think in the United States, if you have your language set to US English, I believe... It says cellular. 
But here it says mobile, so I double tap Connected. that. Settings. And now we flick through. Mobile. Mobile. mobile, personal hotspot. Turn off mobile data to Vodo NZ. Heading. Calls on other devices. Service provider services. Button. Network selection. Vodafone mobile data network. Button. Simpin. Now, Button. you can choose your mobile data network, and this is important. This is a dual SIM function. If you have more than one data plan active, one on your physical SIM and one on the, the eSIM that's currently active, you can choose from which provider you want to get data. That's really cool, and it was particularly cool, for example, when Bonnie was in the United States because she had her physical Vodafone New Zealand SIM in the phone, and that means that if she were to use the data from the Vodafone plan from New Zealand when she was in the United States, she'd be roaming and she would pay the $5 a day roaming charge and then she'd be able to use as much data as she wanted from our plan. But she could save that $5 a day roaming charge by switching the data plan she wanted to use to the T-Mobile SIM that was set up for her on eSIM. Genius. SIM applications. Button. Add mobile plan. Button. Now you can add a mobile plan. At the moment, I don't have an eSIM active. You can play with this, by the way. There's an app you can download called Gig Sky, which gives you a data plan. It's not that cheap, but you can play with it, I guess, if you really want to. But you can add a mobile plan, and there are various ways that you can do that. So this is where you find it. You double tap the add mobile plan, and you can do it from there. But there are alternative ways. As Terry Clasper has mentioned, sometimes you can get a text message from your carrier, and that's all it takes. You just get a text and you double tap a link in that text and they activate the eSIM for you that way. Some mobile carriers have an app. T-Mobile is a case in point. When I last checked this on Bonnie's behalf before she went to the seeing eye, it was not particularly accessible. And I think I ended up needing to get sighted assistance and uh, that, was, uh, that was not the best, but it could be done. We are talking about flashbulb moments, those moments that occur that you just don't forget. And here's Kathy Blackburn in Austin, Texas. She says, I was in eighth grade when President Kennedy was assassinated. We got the word during English class. We were sent home from school a couple of hours later. Audley lived in Dallas at the time. I won't try to tell his story because he can do it better, except he's listening to a baseball game. What? My next flashbulb memory, says uh, Kathy, is August the 1st, 1966, when a man called Charles Whitman committed what's considered the first mass shooting in America from the tower of the main building at the University of Texas. My mother, sister and I were at my grandmother's house. My father called from his job and said, what's going on? Every ambulance in town just went by. We turned on the radio and heard there was a sniper in the tower. I can't remember now how long it took before the police figured out what was going on and how they were going to deal with it. 31 people were injured, says Kathy. 16 died that day. Another man died years later. The September 11 attacks are obviously a flashbulb memory for many. 
the attack in 1993 is hardly ever mentioned. I wonder why that is. Here is Petra. Good morning, says Petra. One of my flashbulb memories is when I got my first guide dog, Duchess. She changed my life. I was in high school and I lived in a small town. If I wanted to go into town after school, I would call my friend and ask her if she could take me. When Duchess came into my life, I would call her and say, I'm going into town, do you want to come? Another memory is when I got an Opticon. I couldn't wait to be able to read print. My mom and sister shared books, even sending them back and forth, and now I was in the loop too. I still use guide dogs and Opticons. You have to look after that Opticon because they're getting harder to repair, aren't they, Petra? And it's interesting that you use the Opticon still in this era of scanners and other technology. So it would be interesting to explore what it is about the Opticon that still entices you to use it. And I know a lot of good, skilled Opticon users feel the same way. They just don't want to give it up. And many have all sorts of spares just in case something happens. Grace mentioned that she had a visitor from her accordion teacher. After 40 years of no contact, there's a knock on the door. Next thing you know, you open the door and there's the accordion teacher standing on the doorstep after 40 years. I don't know whether it's been 40 years since Grace played the accordion, but we might be about to find out. Hello, Jonathan. It's Grace here. Yeah. Well, here I am with my accordion. So I'm going to play a tune. It's a Scottish tune and it's called Dancing in Kyle because it's a short one. <laughs> okay, okay, so ready? I'll try this. Okay. Ahem, ahem. Ahem. Oh my goodness. That, well, how did you enjoy that? That was you did. epic. It's a pleasure doing it for you. Oh. Take care. We send our love. Speak soon. Bye. Look, look, the production crew is upstanding, Grace, because that was fantastic. Oh, that was marvellous. See, a wee, a wee dose of, like, Jimmy Shand-like Scottish accordion music. That is just marvellous. Well done, Grace. On last week's exciting instalment, we talked about the importance of efficiency. How important it is that we don't lose sight of the fact that accessibility and efficiency are not the same thing. That you can have an accessible experience that is actually pretty inefficient. And there's some response to this, like this one. Hello. 
Hello, everybody. This is Beth. And Jonathan, I love, love, love your new podcast. Woo! Keep it up. And you're a guy after my own heart. Efficiency. Yes, that is a real bone of contention for me. I don't believe that phones or computers are efficient for anybody. Oh. I believe in what I've been reading that someday, hopefully soon, voice will be the king of interfaces. Mm. I cannot wait. By the way, I remember WordPerfect 5.0. I sure do. I have gotten an iPhone in April, and I'm working with it. I'm enjoying it. But again, the efficiency is not there. It just isn't. Is it doable? Yes. And that's very important. The distinction between doability if that's a word, well, it is now, and efficiency. <laughs> you just there is it. a big gulf between those things. Also, and this is very surprising to me, I did not think in a million years that I would ever say this, but after using apps with the iPhone, as accessible as the apps that I've been using are, they're wonderfully accessible, but I believe that websites are more efficient than apps are. That really amazes me. Another thing on this topic, this is not discussed very much, and I wish it were discussed more. There are what I call, and I guess this is what they're called in the industry, shells. No, not seashells. No, not macaroni shells, but shells that you put over an operating system. For example, there is a new one by Dolphin called Guide Connect. And I know that, that a lot of people would say, oh, that's for non-techies and people just getting started. No, no, no. Now, I haven't tried it. But you talk about efficiency. That sounds like a way to go. It's for Windows 10. And it really sounds good. There are some, like Project Ray, and there's one more whose name is not coming to my brain right now, for the Android system. There's Eyes Free. I've heard of that. What do you think of these shells? And I think there should be more of them. Oh, one more thing is melatonin. You were talking about the non-24, and I take melatonin. It works great for me. It doesn't mm. work great for everybody. But I'm so happy that I take it. You raise a number of interesting points. Let's see if I can remember them all to deal with. When we talk about efficiency, I suppose one thing we have to guard against is our own unfamiliarity. So if you were a super proficient user of whatever technology we're talking about, would that make a difference to the perception of efficiency? And I'm not suggesting for a moment that, that you're not because I simply don't know. But I think it is something we need to bear in mind that if some technology is new to us, then it is going to take us some time to come up to speed. I know that many people who get their first iPhones want to throw the jolly thing out the window for a while because the touchscreen paradigm is so unusual and it does take some time. So I suppose the question is, how efficient are you when you really do become proficient? Does proficient make you efficient? I think with the iPhone, the answer is maybe sometimes. 
For example, if you are going to flick around the screen to get to where you need to go, then yes, it's going to be a little bit inefficient, isn't it? It's kind of like arrowing around a series of menus versus knowing the shortcut key. But if you've explored the screen enough and you know precisely where to touch on the screen to get the icon you want, it's incredible how efficient you can be in the iPhone environment. The rotor also helps with iOS, the actions rotor. I think that's a really cool attribute of iOS that helps with efficiency. You mentioned websites being more efficient than apps, and I guess I would say, I think that depends on the, on the website and the app. And it will be interesting to see if you feel the same way a little bit further down the track in your iPhone journey. I've certainly felt for quite some time that the iPhone has not been a particularly good content creation device, that it's been a pretty cool content consumption device iOS 12 and maybe 11 have started to change that with things like the spelling rotor. It's really efficient to correct your spelling now in iOS. And iOS 13 is going to take things to a whole new level because there are so many keyboard commands in iOS 13 that you can assign to a keyboard. You've also got gestures. You can assign your own gestures in iOS 13 to a wide range of functions, and you've got the voice control in iOS 13. And I think Apple's perception of voice control has evolved even during this iOS cycle, this iOS 13 cycle, because initially they kind of set the signal that oh, voice control is not really designed for blind people. It's more for people with physical disabilities, and I'm sure that that's still predominantly the case. But there are actually many voiceover functions now that you can use voice control with in iOS 13. It's, it's remarkable. So you will be able, for example, in my own use case, if I'm going through tweets or wanting to respond to email, I can be on the treadmill and completely control the phone by voice. This is more than just Siri. This is actual navigating through an app, double tapping something to activate it. All those things are possible by voice in iOS 13. And I think that's extremely exciting. Regarding the shell thing, well, I've had a little bit of experience of this, I guess you could say, because of my work with Keysoft when I worked for Pulse Data and Humanware. And of course, before that, I used Keysoft a lot. I used Keysoft all the way back in 1986. And I think one of the challenges of these proprietary environments is that technology is changing so quickly that they can get behind, they can lag behind pretty quickly. So you get used to this shell environment that may have been optimized for blind people to use, but then you start to get frustrated because so much is changing that it's difficult for the developers of that environment to keep up. So I think that is a danger of those sorts of environments, and that's why my, my personal preference is that the screen reading technology give us access to as much as possible, as efficiently as possible. Having said that, though, I do think it's a shame when people use derogatory comments about environments like this, because anything that assists a blind person to get access to information, to tap into the resources that are out there these days, 
It's great, isn't it? And maybe for some, they'll be training wheels, which eventually they will take off, but it gives people confidence to perhaps start somewhere. And I haven't used Guide, actually. I'd like to download it and take it for a spin. I don't know whether there's a demo available, but I've heard good things about it, and it would be interesting just to have a play. So thank you for the prompting. I may well do that. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hey, Jonathan, it's Steve in Kingston. Hey, Steve. The automated voice that says, please leave a message after the uh, tone is interesting because it's the same voice that's on our pharmacy that we use to order uh, drugs online. Oh, dude. Not, not, hey, not, Dave, I got the stuff. Type drugs, but uh, <laughs> medications. Interesting. I, it rather threw me. I wasn't expecting that. Grace did a good job on that accordion, she and that did. takes me back. I had an accordion when I was young. It only had 32 buttons on it. I'd like to know how many buttons Grace has had. I hankered after a 120-button accordion because they could play all the chords and everything, whereas mine was limited to the number of chords it could play. But I had fun with it. I used to uh, play rock songs. I can remember songs like Oh Lonesome Me, Story of My Life. I used to play those two songs. I remember that. <laughs> Flashball memories. Well, many people have already talked about both of mine. JFK, for sure. I was in grade nine, and our classes at that time were 40 minutes long, and we went into a Latin class at 2.10 Eastern Standard Time and wrote a test, the first Latin test in grade nine. Came out of the class about 2.50 to go to my next class, which was music, and one of the students who was in another class said to everybody at the top of his voice, JFK has been shot. And... I don't think that it affected us in quite the way I thought it would at the time. But what's interesting to me, thinking back, is that we had two more classes to go. It was a Friday afternoon, of course, and so then there would be the weekend. Nothing, absolutely nothing, was said by the music teacher or the final class teacher, which was math. But I remember then going back to the dormitory, because we were staying at school in those days, and I did nothing all weekend except listen to the radio, NBC, and had to go to church, so we missed the assassination of Oswald. We were compelled to go to church in those days. But nonetheless, that was the big one. The other one was Elvis for me. I had just come home from work. I was upstairs putting stuff away, probably getting changed, and news was on, and I knew the news was on, and Nancy yelled up the stairs, Elvis is dead. Well, that changed the rest of that day for me, I can tell you that. Anyway, good show, and uh, we'll be listening for the duration. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. Good on you, Steve. Thank you very much. Yes, and for me, I mean, I remember Elvis too, and the, and the John Lennon thing, it's almost so painful that it's hard to talk about even now. Uh, and I still find that anniversary incredibly tough, incredibly tough, I guess, we just all hoped that maybe the Beatles would come together. Do you, do you think the Beatles might have played at Live Aid had John still been living? I do wonder if something like Live Aid could have been the catalyst for the Beatles making a surprise appearance. But it's all hypothetical, isn't it? Brandt in South Africa, he says, if you want efficiency, get a bash shell quicker than any ghee 
he says. Well, that's true. Requires a bit of skill, though, doesn't it? May Thompson is in Bonnie, Scotland as well. She says, I don't remember the dates, but I remember where I was when Radio Caroline closed down. Of course, Radio Caroline, which for those who don't know, was an offshore station in the UK. They're now on land and they actually, they've gone all legit now because they have an AM license in one part of the UK and they're on digital radio and sky and things now. Um, are you, they closed down several times because they've been shipwrecked and all sorts of things. But I presume you're talking about the January 1968 close down, are you, May, where they, they tried to limp on after the Marine Offences Act came into force, but were eventually closed down by creditors. She says, I'm pretty sure I was at school. Not sure if I remember Radio London closing down or not have just finished reading johnny walker's book i've read that unless he's done a new one and it's excellent i heard a show a couple of weeks ago where he and tiggy his wife were on together and it was a lovely show they've got such a nice relationship that couple and she obviously adores him she adores him and and she's not hesitant about saying so it was gorgeous it was a it was a really Lovely show to listen to. In the email, Mitchell Pantelidis is asking about running DOS applications in Windows 10. And how do you do it? I must say, I haven't had cause to play with this a lot, but I did have a quick chat with Mr. Google, and it told me, or Ms. Google, don't know what gender Google is, but Google told me that you should just be able to run the application in the way you normally would, and it will install any extra requirements that you need to run the DOS application, and then off you go. I suppose the key will be what kind of accessibility do you have in a command line these days? I know that when I go to the command line by going to the run dialog and typing CMD and pressing enter in JAWS, you know, you get you get basic uh, feedback about what's on the screen. There are all sorts of weird things going on with retro stuff. I mean, you know, people are getting into vinyl again and even cassettes again. And I see that there's a thing called Windows 95 for, I don't know what it is called actually, but, but you people are running Windows 95 on iPhones and all sorts of really crazy stuff. Anil Adivishnu, welcome to you, Anil. And uh, he's left a very long message, so I I can't really uh, condense it. But I am happy to summarize what he says because he makes some very important points. He says that there's more scope for scanning and reading software to improve. This is as a result of what I was talking about last week regarding the advantages of using software like Kurzweil 1000 and OpenBook because you can scan and read and recognize at the same time. But Anil's saying they don't support a lot of regional languages yet. And so he has to use his iPhone to read a lot of text because he just can't do it in the language he needs with either Kurzweil or OpenBook. He notes that Vocalizer Expressive hasn't been updated for open book and he says there hasn't been a Kurzweil 
1,000 update for a long time. He says Kurzweil 3000 is still being actively worked on, but Kurzweil 1000 is not. He agrees with me about the utility of these applications still, that they have a purpose, but he is concerned that the AT companies are neglecting them. And I suppose the thing is, Anil, that there may not be a lot of money in it because even though there are a few of us who still recognize the importance of these applications, maybe there just aren't enough people buying them in this day and age where there are $5 apps to justify the cost. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Bonnie Mosin is back in the studio. Hello. Welcome <clears throat> back in the Thank studio you. for you. another body bulletin. Yeah. Can I just say that Maria Christick says, speaking of Live Aid and Beatles, I've been enjoying this latest crop of music-inspired films. Oh, Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody, Yesterday, which I haven't seen yet. Nicola, my 16-year-old, tells me it's good. Blinded by the Light, I've also heard good things about that as well and how mm-hmm. you know, a young guy had his life turned around by the boss's music. The and boss. Rocket Man, have you seen any of them? You've seen, we've both seen Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody, I've seen it. Three times now because it was on TV the other night. The other, you liked it a lot, didn't you? I did. You? I thought it was really good. I mean, it's it's it, it took some literary licenses. It did. It's do. not exactly factual. No, but it's, it's good. I would like to see the one about the boss. There's another one. There's the blinded by the light, but there's one about him as well, which I can't remember the name of at this moment. But I heard about it. Right. I'm hoping he'll come back to New Zealand because I'd really like to see him. We do now have Rocket Man. Yeah, Rocket we have Man. Rocket Man audio described. And I've heard that that one is kind of some people I know didn't particularly like it, and again, I think it took some literary license because it was some song that he claimed he wrote or played at the piano when he was a little kid, but that wasn't true. Well, if you want the closest thing to fact, you should probably read an autobiography. Yeah. I mean, they they have to take what a little bit to of poetic do to make it interesting. Make, yeah. I mean, very few people's lives are that fast. Fascinating. I mean, you have to sort of gild the lily. No, you only need to sit is, through nine episodes of the are- in the arena to yeah, know that. Like Joe Biden and his war stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, Rocket Man's going to be good. We're looking yeah. forward to watching that. And Bohemian Rhapsody was good. I think that the interesting thing about Rocket Man is that the guy who who plays Elton John and sings the songs, he didn't try to do an Elton John imitation. Some of the interpretations of the Elton John music in that movie are not bad. They're different. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're, they're different. Can I just mm-hmm. read this email? Mm-hmm. It says here, it sounds like something out of Dragnet. Bum, 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 bum. Saturday, August 31st, 2019, New York. 3.24 p.m. That's what it says here. Ooh. It's from Dawn Savino. Oh, Dawn. Yeah. yeah. It says a flashbulb, a flashbulb moment. On September 11, 2001, I was sitting in my pajamas drinking coffee with my wife when the phone rang. It was a little after 9 a.m. This was an unusual occurrence given that Elizabeth, my wife, was a theatrical lighting designer who did the majority of her work in the wee hours of the morning, and I, at the time, was working in an academic research setting. No one ever rang us up before noon. Hmm. On this day, it was my Aunt Judy in a panic. My God, they've flown two planes into the World Trade Center towers. Call me Dawn Marie. 
Her concern was understandable. My apartment is just about 25 blocks from what eventually became known as Ground Zero. Liz and I immediately turned the TV from the nostalgia station on which we'd been watching reruns of the Mary Tyler Moore show (laughs) to the local news. Indeed, it seemed that we were facing an extreme disaster. As seasoned New Yorkers, we were used to dealing with disasters. We didn't panic. We were calm. We heard that a plane had flown into the Pentagon. As I recall, that was our first inkling of understanding that this was absolutely a deliberate attack. But it was not until we heard about Flight 93's having been brought down in uh, rural Pennsylvania by its brave passengers that we knew definitively that America itself was in peril. I remember feeling a distinct buzzing inside my brain. Good God, we're all going to die. Thank you very much, Dawn. That's a really very poignant, poignant message. Email. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it um <sighs> I remember, I mean, the thing I think I'll always remember about September 11th was how beautiful that morning was. Because I was walking to uh, where I would catch the van to go out to the seeing eye. And it was just a beautiful autumn morning. It was gorgeous. I mean, everybody was commenting on how blue the sky was. And it's interesting how things can change so quickly. And there was an election, I believe, Dawn, you can correct me. Was it a mayoral election that went on that day? I've, it was some kind of yeah. election in New York City. Yeah, I think and it I, was a mayoral election. And yeah. I had the radio on WABC and um, was sitting at my desk, and they said a plane had hit the World Trade Center. And they, you know, at first they thought it was a Cessna, you know, because, you know, that, that that could happen easily. And then they said, no, it was a 757. And they're like, well, what the heck? And then, and then it hit again. And we had trainers uh, that were headed into Manhattan to work with dogs, and they were outside the Holland Tunnel, and uh, one of them saw the second plane hit, and they turned around because I remember Dave Johnson, when they got back, he said, I wasn't going in that tunnel. He said, we didn't know what was going on. We were not going in there. And um, and I think that's the thing, isn't it, that Many of us remember who watched that unfolding was when the first plane hit, people thought there'd been some sort of tragic accident, that something had gone very wrong with the plane or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that awful kind of stomach churning, aha, you know, oh, my God, this is deliberate moment when the second plane hit. Yeah, it's, uh, and I think people weren't even sure when the second plane hit that maybe because I, I think people thought maybe it was just some horrible something that had gone wrong, you know, even then because it was so unbelievable. And I remember, you know, when Dave and Joan got back from seeing, you know, that and people were still very confused and a lot of people were calling uh, no one really knew what was happening. And, and as Dawn said, when those other planes, when the plane hit the Pentagon, we knew that something was really not right. And I remember calling my mom and saying, you know, one of the, the tower, we don't know what's going on here, but I'm okay. You know, one of the towers or both towers have been hit. And then um, I called her like an hour or so later when both towers, I said, the towers are gone. One of the things that 
I find interesting is the way that stories are broken and uncovered. I guess it's the the media professional mm-hmm. in me that finds that interesting. And I have collected audio of various breaking stories over the years. One thing that hasn't come up, which is a flashbulb moment for me because I was involved at the media end, was when the first Iraq war began yeah. in the beginning of 1991. And I've never been more grateful that I was a Braille reader than that day because I was on the air and they were able to bring <clears throat> to me the breaking news bulletins. We had a, a Ransley Braille translator, which was a crazy box. It would create some pretty strange Braille anomalies. But um, they would be able to print things off and bring it in. And I would read on air, uh, often without the luxury of pre-reading, the, the attack had begun. Um, I remember having the CNN feed in my headphones um, of John Holloman and Bernard Shaw. And was someone else there? Peter Annette, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who could forget him? He's a New Zealander. On the top of the – what hotel was that? The Al Rashid, was it? Yeah, the hotel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so being on the air and um, – I was playing a piece of music and I remember fading the music down. You know when you're a listener, if if you're in the middle of a song and it starts to fade down and you hear a news jingle, whether it be just a regular news jingle or a news flash, when, when, that ha- when I'm a listener and that happens, my stomach instantly tenses because I know that something significant is coming and it's probably not going to be good. And so to actually deliver that kind of news when you're on the air, it's... It's quite interesting doing it from that side of the mic and knowing that you've just got to be really professional. You've got to keep focusing and you're processing a lot of information. So that was quite an experience for me um, dealing with that. And uh, they actually kept me on longer because I seemed to be coping with the... Yeah, um, you have to stay calm. I mean, even in 9-11, I mean, Tom Brokaw, that was one of the few times he broke down. Well, I can understand that. Yeah, can't you? I mean, it was horrible because, you know? and, um, and even and Walter Cronkite. I mean, one of the most moving bits of media I've seen is is Walter Cronkite choking up when he announced um, President Kennedy's yeah. death. We have fifteen Sonos devices at Mosin Towers. Yes. Fifteen. Dude. When I called Sonos for support a while ago, they said, dude, they said. Dude. You've got 15. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, some of them are in room setups, like our sub and our play bar and our two rear surrounds. That's four devices right there in the living room. But anyway, we're pretty steeped in the ecosystem and the uh, Sonos... Devices with microphones, with the exception of the Play 5s, which have microphones that Sonos chose not to activate. But the Sonos 1s, and also if you have a Beam, which we do not, it works for them as well. They have the ability to have the soup drinker and also Google Home. But you can't have both. So you have to choose which voice assistant service you want to use on each Sonos. You can mix and match. So we have our Sonos one in the bathroom. We have another Sonos one in the dining room. And we could, say, make one a super drinker device and one a Google Home. But Bonnie doesn't like 
me turning them into Google Homes. I, I sort of understand why, because one of the things about them is that I don't know whether this is just something on our network or from where we are, but Sonos, when you turn them into a Google Home, they do take a while to respond sometimes. You ask the question and, and the response takes a wee while to come back. And yet with the soup drinker, it's much, much quicker. So we sometimes I switch it over just to have a bit of a play and then we switch it back. Well, one thing I discovered the other day, because I thought this probably works and I haven't gotten around to playing with it is, can I control our television when we have a Google Home? Because we've got a Sony Bravia TV and it's running Android TV and it's also logged into the same to my Google account, the same Google account on which we use the Google Assistant. So just on a spur of the moment thing, I said, turn on the TV. And it did. And then I said, play Designated Survivor on Netflix. And it did. And I thought, well, that's pretty impressive. And I got it to change channels, too. But now I can't get it to do it again. It was pretty cool. I was telling it to play channel. I, th I think what you have to do is you have to switch the TV to the TV input and then it can change channels. But I haven't worked out the voice command to do it, you know, to tell it to switch to, to TV mode and the input selection. But anyway, it's all pretty cool, actually, because what it means is if you've got a Google Assistant and you can pipe the audio from your Android TV into Sonos, you can be like in the master bedroom and control your TV which is in the living room. And that's pretty cool if you curl it up on a winter's night watching TV and you're a blind person because you don't need to see the screen, do you? See, everything has its perks. So then I thought, well, since Bonnie wants me to change it back to being a soup drinker, I will have a play with the Google Assistant app on iOS, which I've played with a little bit, but not a lot. And it's actually pretty versatile these days because you can control all kinds of things with the Google Assistant for iOS. So one of the things that I've always found with Google is that its dictation is a lot more accurate. Perhaps it's getting a little better now than it used to, perhaps, in iOS, the, the, Siri, the Siri dictation. But... I still think that Google Dictation has an edge. And for a while, I was making use of Google Dictation by using Gboard, which is Google's keyboard that you could install in iOS. But the downside of that was it restricted my access to Braille screen input. And probably about 95% of the, the writing I do on my iPhone, I do with Braille screen input. I'm a Braille screen input ninja. I love it. It's just so efficient and you don't have to carry anything with you. And I can braille and contracted braille and really rock it along with it. So I didn't want to lose my quick access to that. So I uninstalled Gboard and lost the dictation. It turns out that with Google Assistant, you can do quite a few cool things. And I've now got a command that doesn't conflict because I didn't want to say the magic Google word and set people's Google devices off when they're listening to this. You know, that's why we've, that's why we've changed the uh, echo so that it only responds to soup drinker. But, oh, stop. See? Yeah. Um, 
So now, when I want to do Google, I, I talk to Siri, and uh, I'll show you this. So I, I can say to it, Baker Street. What's the weather outside? Right now in Wellington, it's 10 degrees Celsius and mostly sunny. Today, it'll be sunny, with a forecast high of 13 and a low of 9. Starting to feel a little bit like spring. So there you go, you see. I had to think, what could possibly be as bad as soup drinker? And I thought, well, Baker Street's right up there with soup, isn't it? They're both absolutely evil. So that, 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 not the street, but the song. So, so that's what we have. That's not working. But what we can do now is I've got my contacts from iOS uploaded. You can actually launch a number of apps from Google Assistant in iOS. I can say, for example, to it, play Mushroom FM on TuneIn, and it will actually pop up the TuneIn radio app and start playing Mushroom FM, which is more than iOS does at the moment. So that's pretty cool. I can also text and take advantage of Google's excellent dictation. So I can say, Baker Street. Send feedback. Text Bonnie Mosen. Text Bonnie Mosen. Okay. What's the message? Hello, my darling, full stop. I am texting you as part of a demonstration of Google Assistant, full stop. Here you go. Pencil, Do button. you want to send it or change it? Send it. Mike, button. Mike, message. Send message. Text field. It's a little bit chatty. Hello, it's Mike. a little bit chatty. Now, what's happened here then is that because of Apple's sandboxing restriction type things, it can't just send the message. So what it does is I guess it's using Apple's um, sort of shortcut no. type technology to pass the message to the iMessage app. So now I can review it in the edit field. Message. Text field. Is editing. Hello, my darling. I am texting you as part of a demonstration of Google Assistant. Word mode. Insertion there we go. And I can send it by flicking right. Send. Button. And double tapping the send, send button. Now. Terry send message. There we go. And you can hear notifications coming in thick and fast there. So that's how it works. It's definitely worth checking out the Google Assistant app. You do need the app called Google Assistant to make all this work. There's a standard Google app that's just for Google search, but this is uh, Google Assistant. Here's Terry Clasper. He says, well, here I have 13 Sonos devices, and using my Alexa devices, I do have basic control of my Sony Bravia. I can turn it on and off. Change channels by number, but not by name. So I can say switch to channel three, but I can't say switch to and then the actual name of the channel. In my lounge, I have an Echo. I guess I could use the Google Assistant app on my iPhone and find out if I can get a better level of TV control. Maybe I'll buy a Google Home and play. Good on you, Terry. Nothing wrong with playing with a gadget. Stop playing with your gadget or you'll go blind, I tell you. We also have this Sony Bravia skill, but it doesn't work in New Zealand. There's something about the New Zealand version of the firmware that prevents it from talking to the soup drinker. However, we just got an update 
to the TV. It took a long time to install. And I must say, it was freaky because when it finally arrived and I turned the TV on, it insisted on speaking the whole privacy agreement, telling me everything that Sony does with your data and all this kind of malarkey. And you couldn't stop it. You couldn't just hit OK. It would not actually activate the I agree button until the whole privacy agreement had been spoken. I used the Sony screen reader on the TV. I was pretty intrigued that they'd gone to that much trouble to make sure that you sat through the privacy agreement before you could proceed. A fiendish plot. You've got to feel sorry for Jack Dorsey, don't you? I'll never let go, Jack. Poor Jack Dorsey had to let go of his Twitter account. Jack Dorsey is the founder of Twitter and their CEO. He was away for a wee while, but then he came back to reassume the CEO ship. And over the weekend, his Twitter account was hacked. And a lot of people who just read this superficially thought, what a nit. Initially, they thought, what a nit. Why wasn't he using two-factor authentication? Well, actually, it turns out that he was. He can hardly be to blame for this. And it just goes to show what fiendish people some of these hackers are. It's called something like Giggle something, the, the people who did this hack. And the way they did it was Twitter has a fairly infrequently used now text interface. But you'll remember that for a long time, Twitter messages were limited to 140 characters. And the reason for that was Twitter came along in 2006 before really the smartphone era had taken hold, certainly in the United States. I mean, many of us were using Nokia Symbian phones, and but, but there wasn't a lot of smartphone activity in the United States yet. And so Twitter was designed to have 140 characters for your, your tweet and then 20 characters for kind of header-type information, metadata essentially. And that interface is still around. And the way that they hacked Jack Dorsey's Twitter account was they spoofed his phone number and then started sending text messages from the number. So it was pretty well thought through. And unfortunately, the text messages were were very dodgy. Some of them were of a racist nature. Some of them were offensive in other ways. And so that's how the hack was done, all very embarrassing and unfortunate. But it does seem like it was the carrier that Jack Dorsey was using that was to blame. Mosin at Large Podcast. Sarah Hillis is also back with this little pithy observation. I find it interesting that you name your assistants after things you hate. Ooh. I want to update you on my quest, my sacred quest, to be able to hear the Dolby Atmos mix of Abbey Road, which is, of course, coming out on the 26th of September. And I should also say that the Beeb Beeb Seeb is going to be setting up a special pop-up station to commemorate or celebrate the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road. It's going to be running for about three days. So this is exciting. Meanwhile, I am 
totally fixated with trying to get myself in a position where I can hear the Dolby Atmos mix of Abbey Road. You will remember in the last exciting installment, I need a little music bed. I'll just pick one at random. Oh, you're not. There we go. You will remember in the last exciting installment that we had established contact with Dr. Voice. Dr. Voice is of Victoria University where it was assumed that there would be Dolby Atmos playback equipment because apparently they do a course there on Dolby Atmos mixing. So one would have thought that if you're going to teach how to mix, it's important to be able to play back what you've mixed. But... It turns out that there is no Dolby Atmos playback equipment at Victoria University and they copied me in on a very long thread about what they could do to help me. They were trying to be very helpful. So now they have sent me to a studio here in Wellington where a lot of the... Oh, see, we ran out of bed. Where a lot of the Peter Jackson movies are made, you know, Lord of the Rings, that sort of stuff. So there's some pretty serious equipment there. And they are bound to be able to play the Dolby Atmos stuff. So I have written most beggingly to this studio and said, I realise this is an unorthodox request, but is there any way you would allow me in to play the Dolby Atmos mix of Abbey Road? And so far I've got a big bunch of nothing back. I shall not give up. That wraps up the Mosin at Large podcast for this week. If you want to be in touch with the show, give us a call, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Or write something down or send an audio attachment by email, jonathan at mushroomfm.com.